So the short answer is we have some options. Uh, we have rules in the rule book right now that say if you're in a capacity restricted environment, the match director knows what the enforcement uh, uh, situation is in his area. He can he can denote the match to be a limited number of rounds based on whatever that government restriction is. So I don't think the game ever dies or ever goes away as long as individuals can own firearms. Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast. Unfortunately, Chris and Leo couldn't make it, so you just get me. Uh, technically, you don't just get me. You get me and our guest. This week's guest is none other than... Sorry, I had to take a drink of tea for that dramatic pause. Is Mike Foley, President of the USPSA, United States Practical Shooting Association. This is one of the more enlightening interviews in that I learn a lot. He goes into a lot of background with a lot of different things. So there's a lot that can be learned from this, just the behind-the-scenes stuff of what goes on in the everyday operation of the USPSA. And we get into some of the new rules and a lot of other topics to include World Shoot, where to hold nationals, two-gun nationals, all kinds of good stuff, streaming, Nationals Live, things like that. So grab a cup of coffee, or in this case, a cup of cinnamon apple spice tea. Uh, pull up a chair and enjoy the listen. And we'll see you next week on the Casual Shooters Podcast. How's USPSA treating you? You know, for the last uh, couple of decades, pretty well. <laughs> All right. Can't. I've I've been in it for two years, so <laughs> oh, wow. got me by a couple of decades. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a passion of mine for a long time. Okay, Mike. How we normally do this is um, we have a few questions that we start off with, kind of like uh, getting to know Mike Foley. And then, and then we go into the questions pertaining to uh, the USPSA and the interview and all of that. All right. Okay. The first question we have for you is your favorite movie. What would be your favorite movie? Wow, that's a, that's an interesting question, and I'm not certain that I have. A particular favorite, but uh, I like most of the Quentin Tarantino movies, uh, Pulp Fiction, okay. as an example. Kill Bill series, all of that, yeah. They 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 are all over the top hilarious, but yeah, I, I love those movies. I know they're not meant to be funny, but they're funny. Absolutely. How about favorite book? Wow, that's that's another tough one. I'm currently reading some uh, some of Jeff Cooper's books, um, "To Ride, Shoot Straight, and Speak the Truth." Um, I read a lot of uh, a lot of history, um, but uh, not uh, 
not currently into anything else right now, I guess. Okay. Do you have a favorite historical figure? Hmm. It's a great question as well. <laughs> <laughs> we have a tendency to stump people on these questions. Well, no, I mean, you know, in, 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 in all honesty, in, in, in U.S. history, you know, uh, uh, George Washington, uh, not necessarily uh, George Washington as a president, but as a general, uh, as, as an early uh, revolutionary leader, if you will. Okay. Those were some really, uh, really tough men who started this country and, and uh, make no mistake about it, uh, it was not an accident. Yeah. And you, you were saying you're on the, you're in the Eastern time zone. Have you had a chance to visit Mount Vernon? I have. Okay. That's a pretty impressive uh, piece of property with everything he had done. That's pretty wild. Okay. How about a favorite gun? Any gun, any time period? Well, I'd be, I'd be grossly un-American if I didn't, if I didn't say the 1911. One of our co-hosts actually has a World War II 1911 that he got from CMP. That's, um, that's really cool. I, I picked one of those up. I uh, was in the first batch uh, of the lottery and able to get one as well. Uh, mine came in as a Remington Rand uh, slide and frame, mostly correct small parts. Uh, pretty nice gun. Favorite caliber? Well, you know, having lived in a world for most of my life where people talk 45 and carry nine millimeter, having been early on uh, in the 40 Smith and Wesson camp, um, I think today we live in a nine millimeter world. And so while I still like to shoot 40s and 45s and, and, and so forth in a handgun, it would have to be nine millimeter. Uh, in a rifle caliber, we could talk all day about what rifle caliber I like for what purpose, but, um, uh, you know, obviously, uh, that's more uh, purpose driven than a handgun. So. Absolutely. So you shoot rifle as well? I do. Uh, I, uh, I shoot, uh, I, I started, uh, in the late nineties shooting IDPA and USPSA and three gun, uh, was really big into three gun for a while. Uh, but in today's, in today's environment, I shoot mostly USPSA and steel challenge. Uh, I still get in an occasional, uh, PRS or NRL, uh, rifle match. Uh, but, uh, you know, it would be the, the rare exception, you know, one or two a year max. Okay. Well, that's pretty good to work in with your schedule. So that's not too bad. I've done um, quite a yeah, bit of infrared high That's the challenge. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. So I've gone from, and I've, uh, I've shot every caliber uh, from 50 to 223. Well, actually 17 caliber. So, but anyway, that's enough about me. That's not what we're, that's not what they care about. All right. So <laughs> <laughs> getting into um, the regular interview, um, membership. We had the episode hasn't hit yet, but we had Brian Conley on from 
um, Hunter's HD Gold, and we talked about membership a little bit. And one of the things we touched on was active versus total. What What is the, and I was trying to go through um, your slide presentation, which was quite a bit of information, by the way. <laughs> Looked pretty good. Uh, unfortunately, work has interfered with me doing some of my normal research, but what is the actual active membership totals for USPSA? So we have been running, and, and, and just a, a little bit of background here. When I first, uh, when I first got this job, uh, we were at about 50% active, uh, okay. which kind of always uh, just floored me a little. Uh, I couldn't understand why we would have, uh, you know, half of the membership not shooting an activity in a, in a particular year. So that was, the 2015 prior to prior to me getting here, uh, there there were. Uh, about 12,000 people shooting USPSA and about a 24,800 or so membership. Um, the very next year, uh, we increased membership to 27,000 and then had about 15,000 active. Fast forward to 2019, uh, and we were about two thirds active. We had 34,500 members and about 22,000 active. Uh, the COVID year changed that a little bit in 2020. Uh, our membership actually hit its all-time high, just under 35,000, uh, with only 19,700 actives. So, uh, still way better than half, but not quite to that that two-thirds pinnacle that we saw in 2019. Now, do you expect, uh, with COVID not wanting to go away and politicians not wanting to open up? And then you add the ammo apocalypse on top of that. Do you do you see 2021 being a carryover then from 2020? Well, I can tell you that the first quarter activity uh, is actually less than first quarter of, uh, of 2020 ones. Uh, we have uh, uh, we have seen and heard that some people are conserving ammunition by, you know, cutting back that that level one activity, especially in the winter months. Um, as usual, and having been through uh, different supply crises and ammunition over the last two decades, uh, this one looks like it's going to last just a little bit longer. Um, I think that affects about a third of our membership. Uh, the other two thirds uh, has been through it before. Uh, the uh, economy of supply, uh, the age of the membership just lends to that. If we've been around a while, you have supplies to last through this. And if you're new, you didn't see it coming. So, so that's just kind of the historical ammo shortage situation. We were fighting this eight years ago in 2013. Uh, we were fighting it some years before that. It seems like about an eight year cycle, uh, generally timed along with, uh, who's in office in the white house. And we think that, you know, that this is, there's going to be an impact. Now, I can't really say um, all the particulars, but we have a program coming up where uh, we're going to be working hard to make sure that people who are shooting our national championships have access to ammunition to shoot them with. Uh, don't have the, the details worked out uh, such that we can do a release on it. Uh, but we're also uh, seeing a lot of trends where clubs are uh, putting on matches with what would normally be a 32 round uh, large field course 
but they're cutting out a target per array or a target per position. So they're giving uh, they're giving less hoser targets, but but putting a little more technical aspect. I've shot five or six matches this year myself, including um, the Florida Open and uh, three or four club matches. And all of those were reduced round count, but the field courses tested footwork, they tested accuracy, they tested all the components of the game uh, very well uh, with a reduced round count. Uh, even with that, we're seeing, you know, about 25% less in some places. Other places where they're shooting, you know, three, four days a week, Florida, California, those, those kinds of places, um, not quite as affected um, as, as the rest of the country. Okay. I have noticed um, quite a bit of posting on social media about round counts coming down at matches and things like that. I, I, me personally, I haven't even shot a match this year because I am having to conserve ammo that I have because I did not plan ahead appropriately. I didn't realize the extent of what the ammo situation was going to be. So, Right. And, 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 and so here, here's my advice to, to not only to you, but to everybody else who's not been through this before. Get ahead of it because it's coming again. It always does. <laughs> um, I um, have uh, spent many years uh, buying ammunition, trading for ammunition, taking ammunition in lieu of compensation in some of my former jobs. Um, and in, uh, uh, in today's world, that means that I can continue shooting. I mean, I've always known since 2002 that I was going to do this next year, was going to do it the year after that, was going to do it the year after that. Uh, it's a lifestyle sport uh, and something that, uh, that I don't want to let go. So I've always tried to get ahead of that. Now, there are times that, you know, you get two or three months ahead on reloading or whatever, but, but I have personally tried to keep the machines running and supplement with some factory and do some co-op stuff with other people on reloading and just, just stay ahead of it. And because of that, uh, I'm not cutting back at all personally, but I do realize that it stings if you, if you weren't quite ready for it. Right. Uh, that's where I, and that's where I need to get myself. Now that, you know, I've had to live through this, uh, this is definitely not a, a mistake I'll ever make again, that's for sure. Yeah, and that's, 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 the, uh, that's the evolution. That's the evolution of the competitor. So if a guy's only been doing this for two or three years, he had no idea what to expect. But if a guy's been doing this for 20, he shouldn't have got caught this time. Right. And, and, and I will say, I mean, even, um, I won't even say the guys who have been shooting it that long, but just the guys who are, at the higher end of the scale seem to have been a little more prepared, but I think they stock up because they do a lot more shooting in general. So they, they definitely tended to be a little bit more prepared. So to that, yeah, to that point, if you shoot 40 or 50,000 rounds a year, every single year, you're always trying to stay ahead. Right. And be, because of that, you, you at some point get tired of chasing it and you, and you make, uh, you take larger bites out of the elephant, if you will. Absolutely. Before we uh, before we move away from membership, one last quick question: Do do member numbers ever get purged? It was just a curiosity question I'd come up with when I was looking at everything. I was just wondering, huh? I wonder if someone had a membership from, let's say, they were 
active from 2007 to 2012, and they've not done anything since. So they're no longer active. Does that number stay on the roll forever or does that number go away? So obviously in that situation, an annual member who, who let their membership lapse would not have uh, membership today. They would not have access to uh, all of the member services. They wouldn't have access to uh, the magazine, to any of the, the programs that are available with, uh, with preferred vendors and industry partners. They wouldn't be necessarily um, uh, they wouldn't be able to record classifier scores and, and, and so on. But um, we try really hard if someone comes back after, say, you know, a few years of inactivity uh, to be able to give them their uh, member number back, to be able to put them right back in where they left off and, 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 and allow them to, to, to go forward. Uh, it works that way most of the time. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes people just join again. It's uh, uh, not always enough identifying information to realize that it's the, the, the same person. Uh, you know, there's uh, uh, address changes. Uh, sometimes people, you know, change the uh, uh, name or nickname, if you will. And, and, and so those, those, those things can change. Um, but we don't ever uh, purge those. I will say that at some point uh, prior to uh, eight years ago, uh, there were some inactive member numbers purged, and the gap that it created uh, is one that's hard to trace down. And those are people from the very, very, very early days who, for some some reason, became inactive. But we work really hard to dig through that and, and, and try to try to you know rebuild that from an uh, archive standpoint from an archival database. Uh, our uh, our membership engine, as it runs today, is dramatically different than the legacy database was. Uh, but we're able to find some of that stuff uh, uh, and, and try to grant those wishes when we can. Uh, we don't ever recycle numbers. Uh, so as you look today, people getting USPSA memberships are somewhere around uh, 140,000 on the annual side, somewhere around 5,000 on the uh, life side. And in, in, in that, that means that about 150,000 people have had USPSA memberships uh, since the mid-80s. Wow. Okay. I, I, and I did notice that the numbers just keep growing. So I, it, I didn't, it didn't seem like you guys would recycle anything. I just didn't know if records ever got purged. So I imagine having to go back through the archive. That's a lot of paper files you have to go through. Well, luckily, uh, luckily we've had, uh, somewhat electronic archives for, for, for most of that time. And, and, uh, a lot of the guys from the from the late '70s uh, who were uh, who joined uh, in '76 when IPSC was formed uh, through about '83 uh, stayed active uh, past '84, '85, '86, and a lot of them are still active today. I mean, I meet Charter Life members with uh, single-digit numbers. Uh, I can think of one guy in Florida in particular who's something like Charter Life five or six. So there are some very, very uh, long-term members on the rolls. Okay. <clears throat> Moving on to the, the next topic. The next topic I'd like to talk about are, in general is nationals. Um, I know the last, last year and the year before was at Frostproof. This year is at CMP. Uh, are you guys looking to 
move it around, kind of spread the wealth, if you would, kind of thing? Or are you looking at CMP as more of a more permanent option? So when it comes to USPSA national championships, uh, when you talk to members about where they'd like for it to be, everybody seems to have uh, an opinion. And I, I make the joke a lot that, that USPSA members want the nationals to be uh, in their backyard, in their division, on their date, but not too close to their other dates. And uh, it's really interesting what actually dictates where a national championship is held. Uh, one of the first things is you have to have access to uh, a range. And there are some beautiful ranges in this country uh, that are not able to host a national championship. And there are some that are able and not willing uh, and there are others who are willing, but not quite able. And the number of ranges that you can host uh, a national championship at are, are, are not getting larger, they're actually getting fewer. And that's not just a problem that's unique to us here in the United States. When I meet uh, with the Ipswich Continental Council and uh, the Ipswich General Assembly, my colleagues from all over the world talk about that they could have more matches and larger matches if they had access to more ranges. So uh, in that particular case, we like to move it around. Uh, we like to have it uh, in the western part of the United States. We like to have it in the eastern part of the United States. Uh, it used to be for 20 years they had some version of the Nationals in the Midwest, in Illinois. Uh, I, I, a couple of years ago, did a, a history of the USPSA Nationals and I focus primarily on the last decade uh, because in the last in the last decade, the national championships have been uh, all over the country. But if you think about that national championship, when there were 5,000 members and only about two months, it is dramatically different now that there are 35,000 members. And across a year's time, we will uh, uh, offer about 1,400 slots. I think 1,484 unique entries into USPSA uh, and Steel Challenge events last year at the at the national or world level. So yeah, we're always we're always looking for range for, for ranges. Uh, I get a lot of people who inquire about hosting hosting the nationals, uh, but they don't have the facility. Uh, or they don't have a location that's conducive to us being able to uh, to bring everyone everything there, or they don't have a program or any local uh, support for a program, uh, and it really it really takes a lot of those things. It's not just 24 bays; it's also, you know, 108 foot wall sections. It's 70 or better pieces of steel. Uh, you have to have backups for your backups. Uh, you have to have access to interstates. Mm -hmm. airports, restaurants, hotels, uh, places to buy supplies, you know, uh, lumber yards, things like that. And so when, when we produce one of these uh, uh, events, uh, we're looking for what we can do to produce a successful event. And that's sometimes uh, not in a location that someone might want to go on vacation or a location where someone's wife might want to tag along and spend the weekend. Uh, it's really about the sport. It's really about about the, the match itself. Uh, we've been real fortunate in Florida that there's plenty to do there. We've been real fortunate in Alabama that there are things to do there. Uh, when the Nationals was in Las Vegas, there was obviously some things to do there. But even then, you heard from members who liked or didn't like the location. Uh, I've always personally been there for the match, and the rest of the periphery was not important to me. 
but I do realize that uh, people are spending their vacation dollars to get to the nationals and they're taking time off work and sometimes they have to make uh, other people at home happy. Right. Absolutely. And, and I mean, that even brings up the topic of, you know, growing membership and almost like a shrinking number of ranges in the country. Like I, I live in, well, the three of us live here in Virginia and it's slim pickings really for ranges where we can shoot, especially for competition, but even, even just for training, it's difficult. Most of the private ranges around here have a waiting list. Like the one closest to me, the Fredericksburg Rod and Gun Club has a two-year waiting list. So, Right. When I first joined my, uh, my local club, there was a waiting list. They were chartered for 2,500 members. And for you to get in, you had to get on the list and wait six months to a year. Someone literally had to die or move before you could get in. You had to be sponsored by three other members. Uh, it, it, it was a big deal. Um, the uh, uh, the other end of that is is, is that there are a lot of uh, ranges that are losing their uh, losing their range to urban encroachment, if you will. Uh, some of them to environmental concerns. Uh, we're fortunate to have facilities like CMP Talladega, Universal Shooting Academy. Uh, prior to that, Paso Park in Illinois. Uh, prior to that, Desert Sportsman's in, in Las Vegas. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, 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 I think it's called the Casa Range or whatever in Bend, Oregon, where the Nationals was held. There, there are ranges all over this country that, that uh, were built for USPSA Nationals at different points in time and, and, and kind of part of the, 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 the history of the organization. But in all, while we're seeing ranges go uh, away, we are growing USPSA clubs. And if you look at the number of USPSA clubs uh, we have today, uh, it was, I think it was 520 last year uh, and about 280 or so steel challenge. Uh, I think we had about 376 combined when I took this job. So I think, I think where we stand today is that we're at about 800 combined. Uh, which means we have twice as many outlets for USPSA or Steel Challenge as we had uh, just six years ago. Uh, so that gives me hope that as these ranges uh, develop programs and the ones that are still in the game and the ones that are protected uh, under uh, things like the uh, Alabama Range Preservation Act, for example, uh, that uh, we will find more places that host nationals. I know that there are ranges who I've met with who want to be able to do it, and they're on a two or three year plan to be able to uh, discuss it. Um, there's a beautiful range now in uh, Grand Junction, Colorado, uh, that we'd like to work with on an event. We've been working with, with, with them uh, the last few years, but we're finding their location to be uh, somewhat expensive for us to bring uh, all the people from the East End. Uh, we're finding uh, that, uh, that perhaps, even though it's really wonderful, uh, place that it's uh, that it's going to take some development before it has uh, everything that we would need to be able to, to pull this off. It's it's interesting that uh, we have the largest budget for an event of any match that you'd ever go to. 
And uh, the reason being is because we have other revenue streams all year long that, that, that help us be able to put on all of our programs, including our national championships. Uh, but we can't uh, we can't just turn that into an open checkbook. So we have to be somewhat careful uh, in what logistics cost. And ROs are the number one expense. Uh, you have to get them there. You have to house them. You have to feed them. Uh, you know, and 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 all of that is the single largest expense. Um, hotels uh, get a really big check from us every time we're in town, which is why we work hard with tourism entities uh, to promote. Uh, you know, a place for us to go if we promote if we promote their their town and their businesses and, the, and those things to our members and to our channels, then uh, we're sometimes able to get, you know, a break on those services and to be able to to offer that break in some cases to USPSA members. And, and, and so it's, it's a really nationals is a really big puzzle. That's not just a repeatable canned model. Uh, so when you move it, there are, there are a lot of considerations, and if you keep it in a place uh, for a number of years, there's generally uh, a, a better opportunity in the second and third year, and that's why we're doing more uh, long-term relationships with ranges uh, than just year-to-year -year as it was done in the past. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Uh, the more often you do it in the same location, the smoother it gets. I totally get that. Um, is the, you mentioned the range at Grand Junction, is that the one at the base of the mountain, brand new range? Yes. It's about two years old. Okay. Um, it's, um, it's government owned, if you will. Yeah. And, um, it is, um, uh, it's got some really nice bays. They have some open terrain shooting. Uh, they have, you know, shelters in place, a Wi-Fi system for scoring, have mules so that you can, uh, you know, ATVs so that you can get um, uh, all the logistical stuff handled. It's um, it's 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 a it's an opportunity that we're that we're keenly aware of and that we're that we're working toward. Right. And um, I'm I'm sure you you know who Jim McBurnett is. Oh yeah, I know Jim very well. Yeah, he uh, well, I was the medic for the Virginia State match last October while he was the range master. And he was giving me a rundown on that facility with pictures and everything. That place looks amazing. So, which leads me to my next question about nationals. Is there any talk um, in the near future to try to stream it live? Actually, uh, yes. We are, um, we are working on uh, something internally uh, to be able to offer nationals uh, live stream. Uh, and when we talk about live streaming, it's, it's super important to mention that when a competitor signs up for a USPSA national championship, they give uh, the organization the ability to use uh, their likeness and their image and, and, and their video and, and, and so forth. Uh, that does not necessarily assign to third parties and especially third parties with commercial interests. USPSA has a clause in that agreement that basically says that we can assign it. So that gives us the ability to do things like tap out Brian Conley to do live stream if he wishes, to tap out uh, other people who, are, who we're working with to, to, to do those kinds of things, to use that footage for promotional reels like the ones that Tier 1 Media has produced for us, 
So uh, what we're hoping to do is, is, is to cover uh, this live stream situation ourselves directly from the organization. Uh, we have uh, a plan in place, uh, currently uh, sourcing some equipment and uh, trying to free up uh, bodies that can, uh, that, that can produce this uh, uh, content for us. Uh, it does add some expense to the event. It adds uh, an extra week of, uh, of work during setup to make sure that all the, uh, the stages and, and angles and things are covered. Uh, but we like to control the airspace and the airwaves from our national championships as much as possible. Uh, obviously, uh, our uh, sport is uh, very safe, uh, but uh, also at, the, at, at any moment, uh, anything could happen that we would want to make sure that we could turn it on or turn it off. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that's, but, but yeah, so, so, so that's definitely a, a thing. Uh, I think that uh, there have been uh, a lot of people talking about live streaming in one way or the other. Uh, I'm just going to I'm just going to step out on the edge and say this: USPSA and any other sport with the use of a firearm is not necessarily uh, suitable for mass marketing to spectators. However, those of us who are interested in it will spend more time uh, clicking on it and looking at it and visiting with it and sharing it with our friends. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's not like a lot of other sports in that regard, uh, simply because the tools we use are not necessarily popular with some of the population. Right. Yeah, you're only going to – only about half of the population <laughs> actually yeah. find it uh, intriguing, at least at this moment. Um, I find that they are swayable, but you got to get them in the right time. Um, yeah. Now, I know it would require more logistics, more cost, more everything, um, but in order to have, offer more opportunities for people to compete at nationals in each of the different divisions, like I shoot carry optics, so I, mm -hmm. I shot uh, the 2020 nationals. Obviously, when you shoot carry optics and it was production, you know, half the total number of shooters is roughly, we'll just say for the sake of argument, roughly split in half, half are shooting carry optics, half are shooting production. Is there any um, consideration in the future for maybe breaking each of those five most popular divisions out and doing their own um, national per se, where you would now have possibly 300 competitors for each of those different divisions. So that math simply does not work out to be feasible. And, 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 and the reason being is if you take the largest divisions, which are limited in the carry optics and they're neck and neck, carry optics should pass limited this year. So let's, those are the two largest. Okay. Behind those would be open and production and then PCC. And from there it goes single stack L10 and revolver. So if you if if you if you look at that to pair those divisions, you have to make sure that you have an anchor division paired with a non-anchor division or two uh, to to currently be able to do that. Uh, the current you know format that we do with uh, half day uh, rotations and eighteen to twenty one stages maxes out somewhere between four hundred and thirty two and five hundred competitors per match uh, 
to get more people into the match, you have to add more bays or more days. More bays is capped by the amount of daylight you have. Uh, more days, uh, we, and we found if we go to a four-day event, we lose a certain part of the population. If we go to a five-day event, we lose even more. If we go to a two-day event, sometimes we lose a part of the population. So we balanced around three days on half-day schedules with roughly six stops per day. And that generally means in a back-to-back -back format, I can get about 864 competitors through. One thing that we did in 2020 uh, and that we're going to continue on in 2021 is we're having a, a staff match in two days and then a competitor match in three days. And the staff match is actually just part of the same match, but our staff and some competitors can shoot on those days, which allows us to not take up part of the main match uh, for staff, if you will. And it also allows us to add competitors uh, on those days, whether they're staff or, or people shooting with staff or sponsors or, or what have you. So that increases the number a little bit. Uh, it came with a cost, but the, the good part of that is we're also now trying to get only range officers and chief range officers and range masters who keep as well. Uh, I'm not looking for careers. I'm looking for people who are on both sides of the timer. I think in order to understand this from either perspective, you almost have to have the other perspective. So we're working really hard to keep our range officers young and fresh and active and rotating. Uh, so you'll see that you'll you'll see that a lot. Um, so uh, each division to have its own national championship uh, would be a huge cash outlay. Uh, we will uh, overspend, depending on whether we get tourism support or not. We will overspend sometimes forty or fifty thousand dollars per event, and the organization has the financial wherewithal to do that. And we can do that in perpetuity. But if I had to put on three more events at that kind of loss, then it would not uh, necessarily uh, be a good thing for the longevity of the organization. So we have to balance that. You can only do uh, what you can afford to do. And we also have found that that if you get that mix wrong, the 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 lesser divisions will not fill up a match. So we've played with that mix. Jake Martins and I have spent the better part of six years offering this in every format we can offer it. In 2018, we offered the USPSA nine days of nationals. Um, you know, we've done high cap, low cap. We've done irons and optics. Uh, we've split out uh, single divisions. Uh, prior, to, prior to that, uh, you saw some standalone nationals back in 2015, the USPSA production nationals. Um, in 2015 was standalone, uh, single stack and revolver have always kind of had their, their own classic. Uh, this year we made that a larger match and we made it uh, a low cap match. We put production in L10 with it, uh, because the, the numbers should support being able to get a larger number of people through that. And we also base that on last year's participation in a lot of time, in a lot of cases, uh, you have to pay attention to. Uh, not only which divisions are popular, but how how they were attended last year, and and, and so it's a it's a real big balancing act to keep uh, to keep you know getting larger. Uh, we had 1,100 or so a couple of years ago. Uh, in the nine days of nationals, we went to 1,200 and something the next year, and again last year, 1,484 slots. So we're constantly looking to make room for more. Um, and so far that's been very well received because we have more people competing in a national championship each year than ever before. Yeah. I mean, even the, uh, 
And if you look at the area championships, I mean, they fill up in the blink of an eye, you know, where I guess we're uh, area seven, we had Nils on. And when I talked to him, he was on the waiting list, which kind of surprised me. So everything, yeah, fills up quick. There's a lot of people who want to participate. That's for sure. Yeah, that's, that's why we have a three, you know, a three phase approach to our registration. Uh, the 2018 national slot policy, which is just a um, an update of the way that, that the slot policy has always worked, awards slots to uh, top 10 finishers at nationals in each division and awards uh, slots to uh, people from area championships uh, that win the division or win, win, win their, their class in some of the larger divisions. Uh, we offer a few hundred slots to people who earn them by performance each year. And when those folks uh, turn in their slots or, or, or forfeit their slots, the second part of that is the activity that goes to uh, USPSA affiliates through their sections uh, that's earned for the amount of activity and distributed per their section bylaws. And so that's the second way you can get in. The first way is you can shoot well enough to get in. The second way is, is that you can get one through your, your, your section or your club that's awarded slots based on activity. The third way is we do an open registration. Uh, there's actually a fourth way, and that is uh, we offer just a few, and it's just very few. It's a handful each time of, of slots uh, for the use of our sponsors, uh, who uh, then turn around and give them to uh, competitors in, in, in all cases. And uh, then there's the wait list. Uh, if you get on a wait list, and for whatever reason someone can't make it, we go through those in order. So it's first in, first out. So there's, there's five ways that you can get into the nationals, everything from earning it by shooting to, you know, to just being lucky. But uh, we found that mix to work uh, best for us and for all the competitors. Okay. Are you guys expecting any um, participation change this? Well, I mean, we talked about it a little bit. Do you expect the ammo to affect participation at nationals? I'm sitting right now looking at several national championships that are sold out. We have a sold out Steel Challenge World Speed Shooting Championship with people on the wait list. We have a sold out uh, low cap with people on the wait list. Uh, we have a nearly full, and it may be full now, I think there were only seven or eight slots last I looked for the two-gun uh, nationals. Uh, so uh, we haven't opened registration yet for the back-to-back -back in the fall. But so far, for uh, every person that can't make it, someone else is standing there just waiting to get in. Wow, that well, that that's good. That's awesome. That's really good for the organization. Um, and you brought up two gun. Uh, I'm going to tell you, I, I I enjoy shooting everything. I shoot shotgun. I shoot rifle. I shoot pistol. But I don't shoot all of it competitively. But that two gun national in June, when I saw that, uh, to me. That seems like that has one of the greatest amounts of potential of anything that I've seen um, in my very short time. Uh, let me qualify that uh, since probably introduction of carry optics to USPSA. I could see that being very popular with people and even becoming um, matches at you know local ranges and local clubs. That's part of the concept. Um, the USPSA Multi-Gun Nationals, uh, the rule set currently has four guns in it, and you can shoot anywhere from one to four guns uh, in the same match in that rule set. 
Uh, a lot of people don't know that because they've not been exposed to it. So our uh, goal this year was to offer something in lieu of the USPSA Multigun Nationals, uh, which has been um, for, and I, I, shot the, I shot my first USPSA three-gun Nationals in 2002 or three. Um, then I shot it again the next year and the next year. And over the last two decades, that match has never had more than about 300 competitors in it. And most years, it's only had about 200 competitors in it. Um, doesn't seem to matter where you have it, who hosts it, what the stages are like, uh, whether they whether they're bay type stages or terrain or a good mix. And I like a good mix myself. But um, so this year, we wanted to show clubs, hey, you can do two gun. You know, there are plenty of clubs in this country that have base bays where you can't shoot center fire rifles. I used to be a member of one outside of Louisville, Kentucky, that doesn't allow center fire rifles on the property. It's because it's a narrow uh, strip of land uh, that has neighbors on both sides, urban encroachment on both sides, and they can't. Uh, uh, they feel like that they can't contain rifles for whatever reason there. And so, being good neighbors, they're trying to uh, uh, keep their club open. So, uh, two gun is something you can do in a place where the rifle is not necessarily part of part of the equation. Uh, you can do you can do pistol and PCC like we're doing at the nationals this year. You could do right. pistol and shotgun. You could do, you know, you could do shotgun pistol PCC. You could do standalone rifle or shotgun in places where where, where that seems suitable. So the multi-gun rule set has always been diverse, but a lot of people don't know how to host it. And so part of the, the idea here is is we're going to train people how to put on matches and two gun matches are uh, should be wildly popular. One of the things I like most about the format we're looking at is you're going to have a particular paper target um, for the handgun, which would be the USPSA target, formerly known as the metric target. You're going to have a particular uh, paper target for the PCC, which would be the classic target or the IPSC target, as it's called now. And then uh, in a lot of cases, the steel or frangible targets, if used, will be uh, optional. You can shoot those with whichever firearm you want. So I like those options. I shot a lot of three gun back in the day with options, and that allows you to play to your strong suit, or to plan to to ground a firearm in a place that's uh, you know easiest for you. Uh, we'll have you know dump buckets and dump barrels and so forth there. Uh, I think there's an intimidation factor for the for, for for both the pistol side of our house and the multi gun side of our house on this match. I've heard a lot of people say, "Wow, I'm super interested in that, but I'm scared of it." And I found that pistol shooters are scared of it because they don't know how to transition and dump firearms and those kinds of things. Multi-gun competitors are scared of it because we do have the most stringent safety rules in all the shooting sports. And so uh, what I would say to, to, to both camps is, is uh, jump in, get your feet wet and try it. This is going to be a really good place to, uh, uh, to learn. We're going to share a whole lot of media on this thing and, and, and be able to, to show everybody how to put this type of match on the ground. Uh, regardless of what your range setup is like. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, again, the, going back to the potential, I mean, as a competitor, looking at it from that perspective, you know, you can carry two guns of the same ammunition, so you're not carrying multiple types of ammunition. You can even technically carry a pistol and a PCC that use the same magazines, so you can minimize that. You're either shooting limited or open, so that's simplified. Everything can be very simplified and minimized, and it, I, I, that's why I think this could become very popular with people. That's what we're hoping. 
Yeah, I'm hoping too, actually. And I'm, I'm not a PCC guy, um, and, but I'm not against PCC either. Uh, but I, I think this could really move that along. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see, to look at the results. And this is probably, I would probably be more interested in watching this live via stream than maybe even nationals just because of the uniqueness of, of this one match. Right. Um, so you've shot PRS. So in PRS, you have to, uh, I'll say, qualify for their national shoot. You have to score so many points in competition to qualify to shoot, to earn the title, and earn the prizes that they offer. Has there ever been or is there any um, talk of something like that and where you include cash prizes instead of the plaques and trophies and things of that nature that we do now? So I've seen almost every model that there is in the last 20 years on, on cash payback and cash prizes. And uh, we even do uh, cash prizes at the Steel Challenge World Speed Shooting Championship. We always have. Um, we base that uh, largely on the pool in each division. And we write uh, uh, a significant number of checks uh, each year uh, at that event. Um, one of the key differences between PRS and USPSA is that PRS is a sport that's in its infancy. It's controlled by one person. He owns it. He's the final word on it. Uh, they've tried to intentionally keep their rule book short, which is always laughable to me. Uh, I'm not taking a poke at PRS here. I'm taking a poke at the entire world. They'll come to us and they'll say, oh, your rule book's 93 pages. You know, couldn't it be simpler? And the short answer is generally there's not one thing in that rule book that doesn't cover something that's actually happened. And if it, if, if there is something in there that's, that, that's like that, we should probably look at taking it out. But, but everybody starts with a two-page rule book and then human beings show up and some of them want to win. Uh, and you start having to define things. Uh, I've seen that evolution already uh, in, in, in other sports. And um, I'm not going to say that everybody eventually becomes USPSA or that they even should. We're real proud of where we are uh, and uh, what we offer at all levels. Uh, but um, in, in that regard, uh, the, the, the number of participants is not as large. It's centralized. The, uh, the sponsors who are paying the money, uh, I hope they stay. Uh, we saw the same evolution with uh, Three Gun Nation and Multigun, uh, where the first year you had really large payouts and sponsorships and giant foam checks. And the next year uh, was a little bit more difficult. And then they lost a cable deal and then another cable deal and then a satellite deal. And each year the checks got smaller. And each, each year the sponsor, some of the sponsors didn't return. Uh, and so when I look at USPSA and what the right thing to do for USPSA is the right thing for me to do for USPSA is to make sure it makes it the next 40 years like it has the last 40. And uh, I want it to always be here. So that means that sometimes that you have to pass on the super exciting things that fizzle out in two or three seasons or four or five seasons 
for the things that you know work, the things that uh, provide longevity, for having um, a repeatable format, if you will. And so USPSA continues to grow while other sports are in decline. We continue to have our nationals while other sports have to cancel theirs uh, because of that. Uh, that means that we sometimes uh, steer a little slower. Uh, it means that we sometimes move a little slower. It means that sometimes we've already tried the things that other people are trying now. And I hate to naysay anyone that's just, we're all in one big fraternity, we're all in a boat together and we can sink together. So it's super, super important that, 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 I, that, that I say that just because something's successful short-term, it may not be long-term. I hope it is, uh, I hope that continues. I hope there's a lesson for everyone there. Uh, but uh, I remain uh, uh, skeptical about, uh, you know, what that looks like 10 years down the road. When, uh, when we do cash payouts at Steel Challenge, I can very easily explain it as it's 10% of the take in each particular division. So that means that I'm putting 10% of the entry fees into the pool. That means that nobody's writing a check for us to give it away. I don't have to have a single sponsor to be able to pay that back. Uh, so we, we try to base that on something that, that we can control. Uh, we don't necessarily hold our hand out and beg. We have a very repeatable number of sponsors who come to us. Uh, and each year we have people that are wanting opportunities that are two or three in line for the same opportunity. We've had to create a lot of opportunities. We've been very blessed with national sponsorship, but national sponsorship is often a pass-through, and we found it's a lot easier to get product than cash. Okay. And I can say that's probably easier for them to write off the product at the end of the year than it is cash, though. Well, sure. They only have about 25 cents on the dollar in it at most. And, and they also want to get that product out in the hands of people who are going to use it and talk about it and see it. Uh, I think the product looks good laying on the table. Uh, I think a lot of times uh, uh, in practical shooting, we, 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 we tend to forget that those companies are there to sell that stuff. And writing us a check doesn't give them the same, same uh, visibility as putting that stuff out there. Yeah, concur. Absolutely. The, um, we've interviewed uh, Dave Wampler, Tim Heron, Nils, a few other people. Uh, the one thing that seems to be up in the air is world shoot. Um, everybody's like, is, you know, the ones that we've talked to that say they're going to go, say they're still going to go, but they haven't heard anything. Are you aware of any um, updates on World Shoot? Um, so the current situation on the IPSC World Shoot is that by June the 30th, the IPSC Executive Council and the host range in Thailand, the host region, will be uh, making a decision one way or another. So we will know before June the 30th. Uh, we may not know more than five minutes before June the 30th, but, but that's the, the drop dead date for a decision. Um, IPSC um, is really a skeleton organization. If you think about it as an example, here in the United States, we run about 5,000 USPSA matches a year. That's just USPSA. Uh, IPSC Worldwide has their name on about 230, 240 matches. Um, if you look at the asset size of our organization, much larger than the asset size, in, in fact, eight times larger than the, the international organization. 
we're not alone in that. The Russian Confederation is also large. Uh, the Filipino uh, Confederation is also large. Uh, a lot of the, the members of IPSC have so many other things going on. For, for example, we have our own rule set in USPSA. Uh, we have Steel Challenge. We have Multi-Gun. Uh, we also have uh, our brothers and sisters in the fraternity, IDPA, GSSF, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Rimfire Challenge, and, and all. So if you look at how large IPSC is in shooting sports, even though it's a global organization, it's not an organization with a tremendous amount of, of, of purchasing or decision power. Uh, the regions that host the events uh, are the ones who uh, basically uh, make sure that this thing continues. They keep that ball in the air. Uh, it being a confederation, that's the way it's supposed to work. So when we hosted the World Shoot here in 2014, uh, Universal Shooting Academy hosted it. Frank Garcia at Universal Night are constantly putting in for bids for world championships, including one of the next handgun uh, world shoots. Uh, one of the things that we were able to get was the first PCC world shoot, and we were able to get the Pan Americans this year. So, you know, we work on bringing that competition, that, that competition here. But because of IPSC's arrangement with the host region, you, you run into situations where None of us have a crystal ball, and we don't know if you're going to be able to fly into Thailand uh, from all over the United States without restrictions, from all over the world without restrictions in in November. We don't have any idea, uh, you know, what that situation looks like on the other end. And so as Americans, we always get caught up in, well, are we going or are we not going? You know, I want to train. I want to do what I need to do. But it's really out of our control. Uh, it's really up to what, what can happen there. Uh, that situation is usually pretty uh, stable, but in the COVID year and, and, and this being the second COVID year, um, things aren't the same all over the world. Um, there's also, you know, restrictions on, you know, ammunition and restrictions on gun rights in some places. And, and uh, I mean, heck, you know, in, in some Asian countries, they even turn off the banking system from time to time. So you have to be really careful not to Americanize every decision just because you want to know what the outcome of the uh, of, of whether we're going to world shoot or not is but uh the minute i know uh we will all know and uh sometime between now and june the 30th i i, I know if you ask me my opinion you know what's going to be best for uh the athletes around the world or the athletes here in the united states who want to shoot the world shoot is it best if if, if we have it or don't have it gee that's a that's that's a tough one uh, you know, whether or not we have it this year or we sit out another year and have it the next year. Uh, all of the people who are going to represent the United States have been chosen. We do have a wait list behind them of qualified candidates. Uh, all of the teams have been chosen. So to date, I've only had one person drop out uh, and we filled their slot within about six minutes. So we're able to uh, we're able to roll with making sure that we're well represented should it happen. Uh, we're able to roll with uh, making sure that, uh, you know, that we know what the climate is on the other end. If it doesn't happen, it won't happen because someone doesn't want to have it. It'll just happen because they're not able to. Yeah, this whole COVID has thrown a wrench into everything. I would have expected that we would have progressed farther along with all the vaccinations going on, but unfortunately, uh, we haven't got, quite gotten there. All right. 
and I, I, I understand why you know why the why the host region is is reluctant to uh, make a commitment that they can't follow through with, and I'd much rather them say we don't know, than say yes, come on, there's no problem, and then have to cancel a month or two out because at that point there's a lot of you know a lot of travel and, and things that have been booked and a lot of expense yeah. and a lot of training and and so as athletes I understand people want to know and as an administrator I want to know, uh, but. Uh, June thirtieth is the is the probably the, the likely time we'll know. It's like the drop dead date, huh? That's what that's what the IPSC exec has given uh, as of last week. I'm going to delve into politics for just a second, and the only reason is because of the implication of, of what it could have on the USPSA. Mm -hmm. uh, with everything going on, with all of the pushing going on right now. Um, what if, what is the plan if they are successful, especially with uh, things like it, magazine bans over their, the number, you know, 10 rounds? Um, they're looking at a whole lot of different weapons that they're going to try to ban. What is, I assume that there's a plan or something you guys are working on to be able to modify, accommodate all of these possible legislative actions. Okay, so let me start with a couple of couple of very interesting things that relate to this. First and foremost, USPSA was set up as a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Uh, as a uh, officer with uh, uh, full fiduciary responsibility for that organization, I am uh, prevented from being involved in political campaigns, endorsing candidates, endorsing parties, and the like, which pains me to no end. I have to sit on my, my hands and bite my lip all the time because of this. Okay, so what I tell people is, if playing uh, games with firearms is important to you, then you should align yourself with the people that you perceive to be uh, most in support of firearms ownership. And, and frankly, worldwide, individual personal firearms ownership makes or breaks whether you can have a, have a sport like ours. Um, with that said, I was involved in shooting USPSA during the 1994 to 2004, uh, during the Clinton administration, what was known as uh, the assault weapons ban. And during that, uh, during that time, you were not allowed to uh, produce or sell high capacity magazines. So what happened was the supply dried up and the demand went up and we were all paying $80 a piece for Glock mags that you can buy for 20 bucks today. And uh, we were all uh, doing our best to make sure that if we had uh, 19 or 2011s, uh, you know, like STI and SV and, 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 and all of the custom 2011s, uh, that we didn't create uh, felonies for ourselves by buying magazine tubes and building magazines out of them and so forth. So. Uh, enforcement is always different uh, in, in practice than it is in theory, uh, but I think when we were at the Nationals in, uh, in Quincy, Illinois in 2004, and the assault weapons ban sunset, it went from being a felony to, to, to produce magazines on Friday to being totally acceptable on Saturday, and Dawson Precision 
with one of the vendors set up there at the Nationals that year. This was back before the internet was really big. And so most people went to the Nationals and bought their equipment, and took it home with them in their suitcase. Uh, today, we all just order it and have it dropped off on our doorstep. But at that time, uh, Dave Dawson was selling uh, tuned high capacity magazines and tubes and so forth. Um, from his vendor uh, tent at the Nationals, and I still actually have magazines in rotation that I bought from not only Dawson Precision, but from Brazos Custom uh, and some of the other guys. So that, uh, that tells me that during that 10 years when you couldn't get high capacity magazines, we were able to find a way to get through. We were able to uh, be able to uh, scrape and scratch and save and, and, and loophole our way into uh, having the equipment we needed. Uh, if that were to happen today, I don't think that the administrations involved today are going to make the mistakes that the administrations of the past made. That doesn't mean I think they're more gun astute. That doesn't mean, mean that I think that they understand uh, what they're doing when they try to ban something, but I, they could simply make it uh, illegal for us to possess those items. Right. Well, if that happens, that's, that's a very difficult situation. So at that point, everyone focuses on what are you allowed to own? Is it single stacks? Is it, God forbid, revolvers? Is it uh, 10 round magazines? You know, what are we gonna be allowed to own? Right. Um, there are so many political implications there and, and there are so many things, you know, I, I know that many personalities in, in our lane are simply uh, standing up and saying, I won't comply and so forth. So there's, that, there's a lot of, Every time this happens, there are people who are afraid. There are people who buck the system. Uh, even if the laws pass, they're, they're tied up in courts and, and certain municipalities, you know, try to create their own environment. Uh, you know, that's why we have such gun-friendly states as, uh, you know, Texas, for example, Arkansas. You know, there are places where firearms manufacturers are going uh, to avoid the legislative environments that they're running from in other states. Uh, so. The short answer is we have some options. Uh, we have rules in the rule book right now that say if you're in a capacity restricted environment, the match director knows what the enforcement uh, uh, situation is in his area. He can he can denote the match to be a limited number of rounds based on whatever that government restriction is. So I don't think the game ever dies or ever goes away as long as individuals can own firearms. The relative size of the game may change. Uh, the price of admission may change, uh, but, you know, so are there plans? Sure, we have plans, but if, if I woke up in the middle of the night and, and, and tomorrow there was no individual private firearms ownership in this country, we would have larger problems than how we were going to play this game. And that is for absolute sure. I noticed the headquarters is in Washington State, uh, and I know a lot of different organizations are moving to more friendly states. Uh -huh. I didn't know if that was something that USPSA was looking to incorporate somewhere else or the state where they're at. USPSA currently employs 13 um, staffers. Uh, we have administrative office in Washington state. And the reason it's in Washington state is the very first uh, USPSA president, a man named Dave Stanford, and his wife Marilyn, who was the office manager, started the USPSA office in the basement of their home. And then they eventually moved out to a small office space 
and then a larger office space. Uh, and then uh, I recently downsized that to the space that, that our admin staff is now. But we have employees who work remotely in not only Washington, but California. Uh, we have an employee in Louisiana, one in Indiana, two in Kentucky. Uh, so uh, we're spread out. And uh, we have to look at what the best situation for USPSA is. Our administrative office, we don't have any firearms on the premises. We don't have any of that. So what we have to look at is, is the state that we're in a good state to do business with? Currently, the answer to that is still yes, but Washington State is doing everything they can to make it difficult for businesses to want to be there. And because of that, we constantly look, look at these things. We evaluate that over the over long-term uh, leases, and we evaluate that over uh, what the cost would be to, to, to outsource certain components. We evaluate that over what the uh, likelihood of, of having uh, our uh, talented staff uh, in play uh, would be. And then there's some things that you simply can't do remotely. And so then you have to work work around, you know, how do we how do we perform certain functions? You know, if, if, if it's not feasible to outsource, it's not feasible for someone to do it in their home, then you're still stuck with some sort of presence. Where you put that presence is largely based on that. Uh, right now, the, the, the situation in Washington State is still okay for us. Uh, if it becomes uh, unbearable for us, there are certainly plenty of free states to move into uh, here in, uh, uh, in the U.S., and, and we'll, look at, we'll look at those uh, over, here in the, over here in original America, as I like to call it. Okay. Yeah, definitely more friendly there. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So Washington, Washington's not quite California, but it's you know it's um, it's trying hard to be. Yeah. Um, so trying to become Northern California. Yep. Yeah, for sure. I don't know what Oregon's becoming. It's hard to tell. Um. Okay. So that brings us up to date. I'm, I'm learning a lot of history, by the way, too. So I appreciate this. I'm educating. I'm getting educated as we talk. Um, I know, I, and obviously you know, because I'm sure you've gotten way more feedback than anything I've seen on social media. But um, with the new rules changes, mm -hmm. there are some that that excite me. Being a carry optic shooter, I, I love the fact now that I don't. You know, the the last thing I would do getting ready is make sure that my my pistol and my mags were at my hips. I mean, I, I tried to get it set up and get them anchored in so they wouldn't ever move, but sometimes just putting the belt on a little bit different can alter that. Um, so I like the, the mag pouch and the holster, not having to worry about any of that. The I was curious, the two ounces for single stack, where, I guess I, the question would be is what is the basis? Uh, I hope it's not coming off the wrong way, but what is the, what was the reason for the increase in the weight for a single stack? So that's, that's a really simple answer. Okay. And, and I'm going to, as I've done most of this, most of this conversation, give a little background. Okay. Uh, starting many years ago when we when we developed uh, single stack as a provisional division and then a, uh, a, a full-on uh, certified uh, uh, division there were issues with nine millimeter 
single stack firearms making weight. And so you would literally go buy a new firearm from any number of manufacturers, and then you would proceed to have to put an aluminum guide rod in it. You would have to proceed to put a plastic mainspring housing and trigger in it. Uh, you, you, you would proceed to, to take the grips off and hollow the backs of them out to the point that manufacturers started making hollow back grips and selling them. Uh, you would try to get the, the, the lightest mag well that you could and, and, and so on and so forth. So what you were what you were doing in essence is you were saying, hey, we want a division for the single stack 1911, but you got to buy all this stuff for it to work. Well, for years we all just did that, and more and more manufacturers started making firearms that were becoming readily available in the market. Uh, Springfield Armory, Colt, those are two names in particular, um, who were producing nine millimeter guns that didn't make weight. And so if a guy comes to the USPSA uh, match with his single stack nine millimeter and instead of 42.9 ounces, it's now 43.1 ounces and he bought it straight off the shelf to come shoot in your division that you advertised for single stack 1911s, um, then he was getting bumped to open where, he, where his gun would be non-competitive and he would likely never come back again. Now, some of us have more intestinal fortitude than that, but I'm finding that more and more people have a bad experience and, and they don't come back for a second one. I was a little more hard-headed than that. I was going to get good at this game no matter what. Uh, at some point, I achieved I think I'm going the other way now. But, um, but anyway, the, uh, uh, so that's simply to conform to what's being manufactured that, 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 that's, that's commonplace so that the barrier to entry is low in all of the divisions. Uh, we decided a few years ago, and we've talked about this, it must not have got to everyone, but, but we've talked about this. We are looking for a spirit of inclusion to mean that things that are available in the marketplace that people are buying and then finding out about our sport can come play in our sport and have a place to play it. It doesn't mean everything you could buy would work here, but it means that the more common guns and if you look at the evolution of, say, production division or, or carry optics division, as, as, as the case is here, um, we found that more and more people were buying things that were being commonly produced that were for some reason or another not legal. And then we would end up arguing about all of these firearms parts and all of these accessories and weights and, 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 and things like that for guns that are commonly produced and they're the best selling guns today. So if you if you look at that and say, we're gonna stay stuck in a place in time and we're gonna say st stay stuck with these parameters for what the equipment is in this division, then you're essentially saying, we're gonna keep this division small and exclusive. We're not looking for new people. We just want everybody to come do what we're already doing. Well, that made sense for, say, production when there was the Glock and the CZ-75 and the third generation Smith & Wesson. But I see people all the time who don't like uh, the evolution of equipment in the firearms industry that we're embracing, um, who are shooting a Tanfo Stock II or a CZ Shadow II, and those guns were not legal when they were first produced. So if you're shooting one of those guns, but you don't want a guy to be able to do something to his Glock to add a little weight to it, I find that to be just a little bit on the, on the, on the edge of hypocritical. I have participated in other sports. I've done drag racing. I've done a lot of things where if you're not careful, you will restrict the equipment until you make the sport very small and very exclusive. 
And one of the things that I try to say all the time, and that is don't be bad at math. Don't be bad at math. Mike doesn't want anybody to be bad at math. So I make all my decisions based on math. And if that math means that we're in a spirit of inclusion, uh, and, and by the way, this is not something I just get to wave a magic wand and say, hey, this is how it's going to go. There are nine of us who vote on all of these changes. There are uh, at least a handful of employees that, that do this. Uh, we're all very in tune to what's going on in the firearms marketplace. We're all very avid competitors ourselves. And uh, we are not going to ever let this game become stagnant. When it started in 1976, it was meant to be a test bed for people and equipment and techniques. And we were always supposed to be on the leading edge of those things. If I freeze a division at a particular place in time because someone already owns that firearm and I don't allow it to evolve, then I'm essentially capping the audience and I'm essentially killing it. And so we just want people to be able to buy things that are common, SIG 320s, for example, uh, all the other modular firearms that come into the, the, the marketplace, um, uh, HKVP9s, th those kinds of guns, and, and be able to come here and play this game regardless of whether that was allowed last year or the year before or 10 years ago. And so we find that, that, that blocking evolution is bad for the sport and that opening it up allows more people in there. Now you start to see some things in divisions that, that, that people say, oh, well, you know, production's becoming limited minor and uh, carry optics is becoming open minor and so forth. We don't guarantee any particular division success. We don't uh, guarantee any uh, particular division fail. We're just simply on that evolutionary path as we have been since 1976. We started with one division. Everybody ran what they brought. Then there were two divisions, open and limited. And then it started getting larger. I think Revolver was third, uh, and then uh, single stack, and, 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 or L10, and then single stack, and, and, and so on. So um, where we might be in the future, who knows? You might find us that things cross and those lines blur to where we end up having you know, irons and optics, or irons major, optics major, or, uh, you know, you, you, could, you, could, you could make an argument for, if you were starting the sport over today and having three or four or five divisions. But all of the ones that are here have participation in them, and that participation is tied to humans who have an investment and it's tied to dollars. So we're super careful not to make restrictive changes, but rather more inclusive changes. Okay. Well, I mean, that, that makes sense. That's good. That, that's good background too. So I totally get that. And two ounces isn't a, a, a world breaker either. So that sounds... Uh, no, and, and you know, I, I also scoff at the notion that if we add, that adding weight always adds performance. Um, when we changed the limit in production carry optics to 59 ounces, I started seeing people try to build 59 ounce guns. I promise you, nobody's competitive with a 59 ounce gun if they if they are i want to see their arms i want to i want to i want to know what they're what, what they're doing I was gonna, uh, yeah i was going to say they might want to up their shoulder workout well yeah and you're going to pay for that somewhere you're either going to pay for it in transition uh or you're going to pay for it in a fatigue factor if that's if that's a thing to you i mean there are a lot of uh there are a lot of interesting things to me uh, you know now i see that people think that you have to have a flashlight to be competitive or that you have to move your holster to a certain position. But yet I said, I speculate that most competitors based on these most recent rule changes 
will not change their equipment unless they're looking to make it more like other equipment that was already legal. Uh, so we're not, uh, we're not looking to make everything an equipment race. We're just looking to stop arguing about arbitrary small things that don't make a difference. People who win are still going to win and people who suck are still going to suck. And most of the rest of us will just figure out whether we want to change our equipment or not. And, um, again, inclusive. If, if tomorrow, you know, someone tried to put a more restrictive uh, measure in play, then you would be outlawing equipment uh, that's already out there in wide common use. And that just doesn't make sense. This game, this game was never meant to be narrowed down like uh, air pistol, for example, or, uh, you know, the uh, rifles that they use in biathlon. I mean, those things are very specialized. Right. This game is based on things that you can purchase readily available all the time. Now, speaking of the flashlight, I think, I, I don't know who wins the meme war of 2021. Is it flashlights on pistols or is it Bernie from the inauguration? I have, wow. <laughs> I have never seen so many memes about flashlights. It's like, oh my goodness. Um, but I will, and I will say that you know, people have gone and looked at the, the voting and all that, but it's this background that's nice to get uh, as to what the rule changers were for. Me personally, probably not putting a, a flashlight on my pistol, um, just me. Uh, but real quick before we get into that one, I also wanted to say, you know, Hwanza uh, Kim once said that he, when the rule change was made to allow 59 ounces for carry optics. He played around with a bunch of different stuff and got the weight of his gun up pretty high. And that's what he said. He said he paid for it in transition. It just slowed the transition down. So he ended up backing his weight down. I want to say he's like low, maybe low to mid forties. I could be wrong. Don't quote me, but you know, you can do these things, but like you said, you're going to pay for it somewhere. Right. A 41 to 45 ounce gun to me is, is, is the most competitive. Uh, I mean, my, my 2011s I used to shoot in limited were 36 ounces. So uh, I didn't go out and add weight to any of my guns just because I could. I realized that some people do. Uh, I realized that some people prefer a, a long, heavy dust cover and some people prefer a really light front end on the gun. Uh, I, th I think that uh, it would be hard to call uh, people some of, some of the athletes that we have, it would be hard to call them unsuccessful. And again, I don't see national champions changing their gear. I just see the ability for anyone who wants to to now be able to come play with what they have or reconfigure it so that it better fits them. Uh, yeah, I would agree. So what is the background behind the flashlight? The weapons? Uh, that, that one was, yeah, so that one was really simple. Uh, and actually, the flashlight kind of came into the, the second part of this. The holster position was the first. Uh, whether we like it or not, whether we think it's competitive or not, whether we practice it or not, you see a lot of people now carrying guns that would be legal for carry optics division or limited div or, or production division in an appendix holster, which would then move them to either limited or open, where they wouldn't be competitive. Uh, so, so with the Appendix carry uh, of striker-fired polymer guns being, you know, kind of the standard, and, and it would be hard to, unless you live under a rock somewhere, to argue that there are a tremendous amount of people buying that equipment and using it. 
can go to YouTube and look at any random number of videos outside of our lane and see what people are buying. You can go to the, you know, any gun shop and see what see what people are buying. And 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 so, uh, it was to basically make that make sense. And we what we had is we had at one time eight divisions and seven of them were handgun, handguns. And of those seven handguns, we had three different holster placement rules. Well, that didn't make any sense, you know, and, and it was all based on arbitrary points in time. And sometimes on the tactical philosophy of the person who was leading the charge. And I know of some other shooting sports who make this mistake. They stay stuck in some kata because their gurus told them to. And in, in that regard, uh, to, to your point, if you were to have a carry optics gun under the old holster placement rules, and you were to go to the men's room during lunch and come back out and have your belt misadjusted a quarter of an inch in the wrong place, you could literally get bumped to open. And that just did, that didn't, that didn't make sense. So we made the, so, so we made the, the holster placement changes, uh, also, that makes enforceability really, really uniform. It gives us the ability to, to not focus again on all these little microscopic differences, but to say, what's going to define your division is your firearm and how it works and what major components uh, are available in that, in that particular division rule set. So open guns have a real interesting identity. They're compensators and high capacity magazines and, and uh, optics. Uh, you know, limited guns, they have a, a unique identity. Revolvers, certainly the most unique identity out there. Single stacks, a very unique identity. Uh, production guns uh, also have an identity, and, and so do carry optics guns. And, and, and so the firearm should be the determining factor, not some minutia about whether your holster is a quarter inch higher or a quarter inch more forward uh, or those kinds of things. So again, it was to stop arguing about microscopic things that, that enforcement could vary at at more than 800 outlets across the country, uh, make those things uniform, uh, and also to uh, stop punishing competitors who don't know. All right, so, so we take uh, that one step further. Well, what's some other things that you see out, out in, in the marketplace? Well, people have firearms with flashlights on them. And some of them come to the match with that and automatically they have to shoot open or they get to a level one match that's maybe not uh, strictly enforcing the rules of heaven forbid that happen right and at that level one match they allow them to shoot it limited and then they go uh, to the expense and time and effort to get to a level two match and now all of a sudden they show up with that equipment they've been shooting for a year at home and they find out that it's not legal because someone didn't enforce the rule properly at home so uh, it, it eliminates uh, a lot of those uh, things and allows us to focus on the game, to focus on practical shooting. Um, I don't think that I'm going to put it, I mean, I have firearms here with flashlights on them, but I'm not going to shoot them in competition. I'm not changing my equipment at all. In fact, I doubt I'll change my holster positions or any of those things. It just doesn't uh, make sense. Uh, for everybody, but if it allows more people to come in and try it, it allows that spirit of inclusion and they get here and then they figure out what they want to do. Uh, that's perfectly okay with me. Uh, the, the, the thought that we can keep this game a secret and keep it small and keep it exclusive uh, and, and keep it frozen in time because of someone's fragile ego, rather than be inclusive and try to recruit new people and try to keep it here for the next 40 years, 
uh, is one that I just don't understand, especially if that's being delivered by people who are building firearms or doing firearms training. Guarantee you that some of the people who don't like this, if you were to sign up for their class and show up with that firearm and it's all you had, they'd let you use it, they'd take your money. So I don't know why the USPSA should not also allow you to join us, help us grow, help us develop you as a competitor and take your money. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I've seen, um, you know, I've shot local matches where guys have shot their carry gun, basically, uh, appendix. And, you know, I didn't have any issues with it. They, they seem to do well. So uh, that, that doesn't affect or bother me. Um, and like you said, I don't, I don't even know that I will move my holster position at all. I might play around with it a little bit, but the uh, same with the weapons mounted light. So it, it'll it'll be interesting how how it all sways out. But you know, I I can remember when I was shooting NRA high power for the military, we were shooting M14s, and just so we were shooting 308. Just a couple years later, they made a switch, and they went to AR-15 style or M16 rifles that they um, accurized basically and started shooting 223 at long range and did away with all the M14s. And, you know, we all grumbled. We're like, why are you going away from this? You know, rah, 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 rah. And almost 30 years later, it's going strong. And you have, you literally have more juniors who are able to shoot the competition because they can manage the AR and shoot it well in competition. And then they end up staying in the sport as adults and you grow the sport. It becomes more popular. And, and uh, I'll be honest with you, going back into politics for half a second, if you can grow them at a young age and keep them as an adult, you help your chances of maintaining your rights later down the road. So I'm all about going back to inclusivity, doing that and maintaining rights for everybody so we can all enjoy it. Absolutely. The, I had two questions remaining. I noticed that there, it didn't look like there was a vote on the 15 round capacity for production. Mm-hmm. Is that not a thing at this time or is it because it's not really a thing here in the States or um, I'm not really sure how I want to phrase that question, but, but sure. Um, I, I can run with that. It's pretty okay. simple. There's, there, as usual, there's some background. The 15 round production argument was being had before production was a division. It was being had as it was adopted still being had today. I put it in front of the board of directors almost annually at the first meeting of the year. And there has either been no interest or support at all as as in the last two seasons. No one made a motion. No one felt compelled to carry the torch. Uh, When I have looked at When I've done social listening and I've looked at places where this is discussed and when I've looked at forums and when I've looked at poll results and knowing what I know that I can't unknow from the past, I know that if you were to go out and ask USPSA members, 
what would you like the magazine capacity and production division to be, that you will have roughly an unproportional half, say, this proportional half would say, leave it at 10 rounds, we like to challenge, it allows more guns to be competitive, it doesn't become a magazine equipment race, and the other half would say increase it. Unfortunately for the half that say increase it, they are all arguing amongst themselves about whether it should be 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, fit a box, be original equipment, you know, like OEM, uh, or a length restriction, okay? And then you can argue about what length restriction, 126 millimeter, 140 millimeter, you know, okay. So, so when I see this thing going on, it takes all of about 45 minutes for nine different opinions to go to war with each other and start calling one another names. That's really hard to take any empirical data from that. And like I said, we do everything with math. So when overwhelmingly there's a path forward, I suspect that, that, that we'll take it. I personally don't care. I don't care if production's 15 rounds. I don't care if it's 10 rounds. I don't care if it's 140 millimeters. I can tell you that OEM is not enforceable. I have uh, just about every production firearms platform that's ever been invented, and I'll, I'll give you some examples. I have Beretta 92 out there. Uh, I have 15 rounders, 16 rounders, 17 rounders, 18 rounders, and I think a 19 rounder that would all fit the box. Um, SIG 320 comes with 15 rounders and or 17, 15 rounders, 17 rounders, and 21 rounders, depending on which grip and which configuration and so forth. Um, you know, CZ 15, 16, 18, 19, uh, nobody can keep up with that. And we allow aftermarket magazines, and now nobody can keep up with that. So OEM's not going to work. That's We're not going to have a list for what magazines and try to keep it current and try to have this argument on the field of play for around a new competitor about equipment that he bought yesterday that was commonly available. It's not going to do it. So, so I think OEM is out. 126 millimeter would be hard to enforce because the common gauge used in the United States is 141 and a quarter and 171 and a quarter. Uh, that's the EGW gauge or the shock bottle gauge or any of those mag gauges that are out there. They're, they're, they're based around limited and open. So I personally think if you're going to do anything, you either leave it like it is, you keep it to where it has to fit the box, or you put a mag length in, in there that's common like 140 millimeter. Well, now I'm split into three. I'm not, okay, I'm not going to sit here and argue with myself about which ones those are, and the board of directors is also not going to do that. We just don't get a measurable amount of feedback on this subject and, you know, it's funny because I, I listen to some podcasts and I, you know, I do some social listening and I, I pay attention to what's going on in the community. And there's no place that these things are talked about that they don't become controversial. And sometimes there just isn't a solution. And my, my thinking years ago on this was production was one of the most successful things that ever came into USPSA. It was the first successful non-traditional division huge success story. And I happen to believe if you have a goose that's laying golden eggs, you shouldn't go move the goose. So we left production alone.
alone in, in, in that regard. Uh, a lot of people will laugh at that. So we didn't leave it alone. You allowed aftermarket hammers and aftermarket bushings. And now it's grip stippling and slide lightning and so forth. But the industry changed that. We didn't sit around and say, hey, let's, let's try to race out our production guns. People buying firearms in the firearms industry themselves, engineers and salespeople needed, needed to make a living. So they came up with new guns and people bought them. And more people bought those new guns than some of the older, uh, more traditional guns. And we just wanted to give them a place to play again. So uh, production 15, I suspect we'll be talking about it for the next 20 years like we have for the last 20. Uh, I suspect that uh, there is some uh, interesting talk about commonality between USPSA and IPSC. You know, they allow race holsters in, uh, in some divisions that we don't. And um, I'll tell you this, there's not a time that I go to a meeting on any continent in the world with my IPSC colleagues where they don't sit down and talk about rules commonality. But contrary to what I hear people say, Almost always, they say, we should just adopt your rules. What you're doing in the United States looks more successful. It works. You guys are the biggest. You guys are the best. You guys are the ones who have, uh, you know, three out of five divisions on the podium. You know, we're, we're leading the way. So anybody that thinks that we need to arbitrarily go backwards to what someone who moves slower than us is doing or arbitrarily go backwards to some point in time, uh, that's not about growing the sport that's not about uh being inclusive that's not about uh bringing in more people so that we can continue to make this thing uh viable into the future that's about them and their personal beliefs on their personal equipment i just don't get too wrapped up in what i like what i like doesn't matter it's what's available yeah and and what i and the reason i asked that question in particular is I didn't know if part of that was, you know, we, we, there are plenty of competitors who live in a state where they're only allowed to have magazines that have a capacity of 10 rounds or less. So do you then put them at a disadvantage in other matches if they travel outside of their state to somewhere else where larger capacity magazines are, are allowed? So that's why I asked that question. Right. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because we have people cross cross borders to shoot here in the United States all the time and things that they cannot have at home, they can have here in the States. And so if you've been an open or limited competitor, or you've seen an open or limited competitor who traveled to and from Canada, for example, you would realize that they either kept two sets of mags, one in the States and one in Canada. Maybe they had a place that they could store them or whatever or they literally had a rivet gun and they made their guns legal on their way out of the country. And I don't wanna talk a lot about things that I've seen over the years like that, where people are skirting on the edges of, of what may or may not be legal. We're not lawyers, we're not police officers. Uh, we're just operating a shooting sport in a, in a, in a free country. But when you, when you start having to do things like that, um, it gets kind of dicey and spicy and kind of interesting. And I'm not, uh, I'm not sure that production 15 doesn't create problems for people in New York and New Jersey uh, and Colorado uh, in particular. I think because of Colorado, it's got a 15 round. Anyway, New York, New Jersey, for sure. Um, and, yeah. and California. And, you know, let's talk about California for a minute. One of the most prolific places in the whole country for practical shooting is in California. The sport, you could argue, was born there. 
if you think about what it evolved out of uh, that was going on uh, in Southern California in uh, the, the early 70s uh, with competition shooting. And there are many clubs there that have been uh, USPSA and IPSC clubs since there have been such entities. And uh, when people say, well, why don't you force everybody in California to go with limited capacity, you know, 10 round or whatever, my answer is always this. When the people in California come to us with a problem that we can help them solve, we'll try to help them solve it. But right now, if you look at California, 50% of the competitors there either have grandfathered equipment, special licenses, or just don't have an enforcement environment uh, in, their, in their particular part of California that causes them to want to do anything other than what they've always been doing. If you look at the other 50%, maybe it's new people who come in who are scared to death to break the law or can't buy equipment that's higher capacity. And right now, they're still very evenly split. And again, trying to trying to do everything based on you know math and doing everything based on what's best for shooting is we leave that up to the match director, their local laws and their enforcement uh, environment. And if we ever have to make a, a decision, you know that uh, that would affect that uh, outside of that, then we'll have to make it. But to date, even though some people have said you should force you know you should force these restrictions on people, I'm not for forcing restrictions on a population for arbitrary reasons, whether that's capacity restrictions. Or, or whether that's you know equipment restrictions or so forth, um, nobody's going to win or lose a match based on that, and you just have to do what works for you individually. I mean, some personal responsibility and some personal risk assessment is 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 necessary to be an adult, and we just treat everybody like adults. Yeah, I don't know if you remember nationals, the night the award ceremony for carry optics and production. You came over to the table that I was sitting at because our squad had a shooter, a female shooter, who her very first USPA match ever was nationals. And also at that table were two Canadians. And they are the ones that I learned about the rivet gun. And that's what they talked about that they would literally, when the border was open before COVID, they would drive into the country for matches, take the rivets out, put the springs in, then they could maximize their magazines. And before they went back into Canada, they'd pull out the rivet gun and fix it back and minimize the capacity to 10 rounds so they were legal going back into Canada. I had no clue until nationals that that was even a thing. Crazy. Yeah, that's it's been a thing for a long time, and um, and a very interesting one. But yeah, um, sure. But yeah, so so production fifteen is what started that whole rabbit hole. But but when there's a clear path, you know that that, that, that seems like it will work, then then I'm all for it. But you know, there as practical shooters, we sit around at ranges and uh, sit around at bars and and and, and spend time talking about things from our own points of view and, and what we think might be best. And we're a very diverse group of people and, and, and we come up with, with solutions that maybe sound good to us that don't apply universally or globally. And, and 
in my position, I don't have the luxury of being able to have an opinion anymore. I kind of have to uh, work based on what's best for the uh, for the whole population and the longevity of the sport, not just certain special interest groups or certain vocal opinions. Of course, I mean that's the position you're in. I totally get it. <laughs> yeah, I miss being able to have an opinion. I liked <laughs> yeah. it a lot back when I had one. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, the position requires you to be a little bit more politically correct. Um, some do better stuff than others. Uh, I, I can only imagine. Now, my last question is the use of video for appeals. Do you ever see, or has there even been chatter envision using video footage? for an appeal on the same day of the match? I've certainly had that conversation. We've had it as a board. Uh, it's in a lot of the board meeting minutes going back over the last five years. Um, certainly, I've, if I were to search uh, video arbitration in my, uh, in my email, I would find all kinds of, of threads and strings and things to talk about. I've read everything there is to read on and on uh, forums and, and uh, threads and polls and, and, and places. And it's another one of those places where it starts out with someone's either for it or against it, and it turns into 25 different bifurcations and, and, and everybody has their own opinion about it. Um, there are two or three things that, 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 that are um, important to note about whether or not video can be used on the field of play for calls or for, in this case, arbitrations. If you're going to start doing it for calls, you have to understand that the impact there would be how many videos you're going to have to review. Right. The second part would be, is video conclusive? And I have seen people literally post a video where half the people say, that guy broke the 180, and the other half of the people say, no, you don't understand, you weren't there, you don't know what, how, what the camera angle was, and so on and so forth. So, so uh, number one, introducing video does have some uh, unintended consequences. Number two, it doesn't always tell a story. Uh, number three, if you're going to use it to help people, can you also use it to take points away? Uh, number four, does it then create a competitive inequity for those who have the ability to bring more video and more cameras? And, you know, we all think about that as, hey, well, I video my friend and he videos me. We use our iPhones and we always have video and it's not a big deal, right? I promise the moment national championships are on the line and this becomes a thing, you're going to see people bringing four, gro four GoPros and a crew and set them up. And, and I mean, I, I mean, have you seen the tungsten sleeves they're putting on flashlight batteries? I mean, to think that this community is not going to get carried away and do something ridiculous right. is short-sighted. And so for me, I have to, I have to look at this as, 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 is there a clear decision that I can make here that can be fairly and evenly distributed that doesn't cause other problems. And to date, the board of directors has not found a path forward for allowing this, though we have had it brought to us and we have done our due diligence in talking about it. And you'll see some of that distributed throughout the meeting minutes over the last five or six years. Okay. I, I don't know what the future holds there, but, but unlike football uh, or, uh, or basketball, where you can go look at an instant replay, those things take place on a square or a rectangle, if you will, um, where the you can have a universal camera angle and cameras provided by someone who is licensed to do so by the sports entity. 
and we're on a dynamic field of play where we do good to get poppers level on the ground someplace. And we have, you know, fault lines that, you know, that will stay in the ground in some places. And sometimes I say this, we've come a long way in practical shooting certainly has evolved and morphed and, and certainly reaching more people than ever before. Um, and that's good. And we should always look at the sanctity of the scores and the event and the rules as paramount. But we also get kind of uppity considering that just 15 or so years ago, this were some guys taking roofing tin and car hoods and stuff and standing them up and shooting around them. <laughs> yeah. So I, you got to balance that. We could always switch to end zone pylons and just use a pylon camera. <laughs> yeah. The, the, state, the stages would get really boring at that point. <laughs> right. Um, and and the, the reason I bring that one up is when I interviewed Nils, we ended up, I don't, I don't think we talked about it during the interview. We talked about it after the interview, but the snafu at area eight last year, where there, I believe it was an entry issue where his time entered, wasn't necessarily the correct time that was entered. So he won area eight, but when I guess there were some people who had video footage and when you go back and, and they looked at it and, and analyzed it <clears throat> or scrutinized it, whatever you want to call it, um, technically his time wasn't accurate and the win should have been awarded to Mason Lane. So that's why, the because the other part of that is um, I shoot Steel Challenge also and they usually use those display boards for time, the large, I call them billboard display. Has there been any? I'm sorry. Oh, broadcast the time. <clears throat> right. Um, has have those ever been used at USPSA nationals? Uh, I've seen those things used at USPSA matches. Um, I've never seen it done uh, with any regularity. Uh, there are uh, equipment issues there. The older ones all ran on radio frequency. I think there are some in the marketplace now that, that are Bluetooth, uh, that are Bluetooth units. Uh, but sometimes those things have to be uh, rebooted and reset up and, and, and so forth. So I don't know um, that that's super reliable. And I also don't know that there's not a way to get false positives uh, that affect that. For example, if you bump that timer, you're gonna you're going to get a change in display, uh, the same as you same as same as you would otherwise. So you could literally have an instance where someone calls out a correct time, and then for whatever reason the, the timer gets bumped or changed, and then people are trying to refer back to that display board for what it's currently displaying and so forth. So there's a lot of things you'd have to look at there. I'm not sure that that that, that, that that's the answer, and I'm also not sure that you can accurately extrapolate video down to the quarter second. Uh, you know, in on the field of play. Obviously, if there's a five-second difference on a 15-second stage, we would all be able to see that. Uh, but at what point do you break that down and determine? And, and, and in all of those cases, they also take into account the fact that the competitors are all there and able to reshoot the stage. Um, and as, as you may or may not know, many even top-name shooters uh, will shoot on Friday so they can go home and be home for the weekend or whatever. And, yes. and whether or not we make everybody shoot on the same day or same time. And if we start doing that, then our matches are going to get smaller again. And the reason they're going to get smaller again is 
you can only put so many bodies through a through a USPSA match in a single day, and you have to have a, a wider schedule for the match to make sense. And if you look at it from the perspective of level one matches make money for the people putting them on, and level twos make money for the people putting them on, and level threes are supposed to break even, and nationals lose money, you can't get by with making it exclusive and a small number of entries uh, to tighten up to tighten up on everything. Uh, obviously, we try very hard to make sure that we get that uh, correct score. Uh, one of the things I like to see is, and, and, and I don't like to enforce it, but I like all the the, 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 the competitors to want to be together because they will enforce it on each other. Uh, but then again, what if a guy went C-class and he had an erroneous time? So these are these are things that have existed since the dawn of time that you just strive to get better and you strive to train better and you strive as competitors to be honest and, and, and be in the moment. And there, there are certain ills that there are no cure for regardless whether we want to try, you know strap one up and, and but uh that's the kind of thing and if there's some magic thing to mark us to you know, to, to look at some of these technologies we're open to it i mean i get proposals and ideas and and, and i you know we we run into technology and equipment all the time that we evaluate as it stands right now, I don't I don't foresee that being a thing in the near future, but I've learned also to never say never. Okay. Well, Mike, that's all I have. Um, is there anything you'd like to add or summarize before we finish this? Uh, you know, I'll just I'll just throw out there that, that USPSA is thriving. We're open for business. We have uh, matches going on all the time. Uh, we are uh, uh, more than ready to uh, continue down the path of, of bringing in more people and adding more matches and adding more clubs. Uh, we, we really want to uh, make sure that everybody feels welcome and everybody understands that uh, we all got here some way and, and uh, that we need to share this thing. There's no reason to keep it small. There's no reason to make it exclusive. In fact, it was designed to be an amateur sport. It was designed uh, for, for, for humans to be able to come here and play this game as free citizens. And we'd like to continue to, uh, to have more and more people do that. So that's, that's really all I would add is USPSA is open for business. We're doing well. And while we're fighting some, uh, some battles with, uh, you know, with illness or with ammunition supplies, uh, that's not going to affect the long term. That's just a short term thing. and We'll all get through it together. Yeah, and hopefully it stays strong and continues to grow. It is definitely a, a fun sport. So I love it. I've been addicted to it since I first did it. And I'm, yeah, I should have never shot the first match. It's ridiculous. It's I, I, I wonder how much money I would have piled up around me if I had never shot the first match. But uh, I also know that I wouldn't have met most of my friends. Uh, I also know that I uh, would not have uh, learned some things about myself uh, that competition brings out. I also know that I would not have honed uh, my skills to any level at all that I could that I could be proud of. And uh, w without it, I don't know uh, I don't know what my life would look like. But uh, I know uh, how it's been enriched by the experience. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I, I get second all of that. <laughs> but at the end. <laughs> I could probably spend a little bit more time at home if I didn't, but 
it's always fun to take the family with you. So, well, Mike, I greatly appreciate you coming on and taking the time. You've shared a lot of information here and I greatly, well, actually we greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and uh, maybe we'll do this again sometime. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll see you sometime uh, this year. Absolutely. I'll be out there. I'll be at a lot of matches. Just look me up. Will do. Take care, Mike. Take care. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah. <laughs>